0: From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a business that has global impact. I'm Christopher Lawson. If you're anything like me, you've probably found yourself kicking back on a lazy Sunday afternoon, surfing the internet to see what's trending, and you come across this great video on YouTube, and it has this really interesting music. In fact, if you've noticed any trends on YouTube in the past couple of years, you've probably seen a lot of vloggers raving about this great music that they've found to use in their productions. And more often than not, that music will come from a Swedish company called Epidemic Sound, which is on a mission to soundtrack the internet. Oskar Hagland is the CEO and co-founder of Epidemic Sound, and is someone who thinks very deeply about the impact that music can have on our experience with the internet.
1: Prior to starting Epidemic, I'd done a ton of different stuff. And I found myself going, well, I was a management consultant and we did like optimization of churn of customers in finance companies. And that wasn't very exciting. And then for a while, we did television. And that sort of did carry a lot of cultural clout for me in a while, especially in a country like Sweden, where content creation is a core part of our uh, DNA. People watch television. We have the most single households in Europe, uh, we're agnostics. We're not religious. So the stuff that people spoke about around the coffee machines were the TV shows that we were making. TV eventually became less dynamic, and everything moved more and more to the internet. And so we, as co-founders, landed very much in sort of a scenario where we said we want to be able to tell our grandchildren that the biggest contribution of our generation was the internet. We soundtracked it, and this is how it went down. And out come all the stories about how that happened.
0: Now we'll get into what that all means shortly. But from my conversation with oscar it 's very clear that he thinks differently about the world to your average entrepreneur, and that 's likely because of his upbringing oscar 's parents are both Swedish. His mother worked on helping companies set up new offices around the world, and his father worked in banking and in the '70s, they decided to make a move to London.
1: They were supposed to stay for a year fifteen years later, they had three kids: dog Volvo, a house eventually moved back to Sweden. Um, Growing up in the UK, I think, was fantastic in the sense that you're technically outside of your comfort zone. I think I I didn't speak at all until I was three, which is quite late. Uh, But then I started speaking both Swedish and English simultaneously. Growing up in the UK, it was good for a ton of reasons. There is an anecdote, however. So my my nickname in Swedish uh, is Pigge, which means wide awake. And the true story behind that is when I was born in, in Westminster, I was a massive baby. I had Jornis, so I was all yellow, which is quite common. So I had to lie under like, light bulbs quite a bit. And I had red hair. And I was twice the size of all the English kids. And so people would come up and look at all these tiny babies who were crying, eating, and doing the thing in their diaper. And there was this one massive baby who was just bigger than everyone else, completely yellow, red hair all over the place, and just a bundle of joy, according to my parents. And I was really wide awake and very, very happy. And so I got the nickname Pigia, which in Swedish means wide awake and happy. But fast forward five, six, seven, eight years, uh, you have this Swedish guy. My last name is Höglund. So in English, my name was Piggy Hogland. Uh, and I was a non-Brit growing up in, uh, in London. And that was a bit of a challenge, to be honest. But I think that ultimately helped me, um, helped me get a bit tougher, but also understood what it's like to acclimatize and get to know different people. We then moved to Sweden in 90. I was 12. Back then, I I hated Sweden. I was very much identifying myself as a Brit, even though I spoke semi-Swedish English in both directions. Why was that? Growing up in London, my Swedish was struggling because I only had Swedish adults around me. So if you imagine a 10-year-old kid that doesn't speak any slang, uh, only what their parents and grandparents talk like. So I would say that we have fine weather today, and it's an outstanding... How are you feeling? Outstanding Uh, So I would use a language designed for old people uh, coming out from from a kid's uh, mouth. And the same would apply to both Swedish and English. So that, I think, also helped me to understand sort of being same, but also being different and there's some kind of value in that. Moving to Sweden, Sweden was very very inclusive, very grey. I remember seeing my school for the first time. I started crying because I thought it looked like a jail. Uh, Eventually, I understood that everything that Sweden stands for is the stuff that I'm now really proud of. The inclusiveness, um, the close proximity to everyone, both physically but also within society. I'm almost at a point where I think paying uh, a lot of taxes is cool. I like the concept of building a society where everyone gets to participate, where the strong take care of the weak. And I've also come to a little bit when when I meet people, especially um, who live in metropolitan cities. There's this sense of not entitlement, but this is London or New York and we've seen everything we know everything and you scratch the surface and typically they haven't because they hang out at the same bar do the same thing and they don't really utilize the plethora of it opportunity
0: right so they've just got this uh, very closed picture of the world which is just the things that they see on a day-to-day basis and no real understanding about what happens elsewhere
1: exactly that's totally true and also the whole whole thing coming from Sweden we're a we're an insignificant country, close to the polar circle. We speak a ridiculous language that nobody understands. Uh, we all sound like the Swedish chef and the Muppets, and that's true. And so I think <laughs> having that in our DNA makes us very aware that we immediately need to ask more questions than we give answers. We need to listen to others to understand. Everything we do from get-go needs to be global and international because we don't have a whole market to save our business. It has to scale globally.
0: When Oscar finished school, he went and studied business at university, although he wasn't that interested in the finance side of things, so he decided to focus specifically on organisation and entrepreneurship.
1: I got teased by my friends lovingly, but there was some part of it obviously that stung. They said that we would sit in a ring with an orange because it was about organisation and I'd go, my name is Oscar, what's your name? And roll the orange to the other person because they were more (laughs) into balance sheets and numbers and finance and that kind of stuff. And I just simply wasn't into that. That didn't excite me. And so I read about entrepreneurship. I read about organization, about structure. But when push came to shove and I left business school, I very much did the ordinary thing from that perspective. And I became a management consultant. So I worked for a big American firm called Boston Consulting Group. And I worked as a consultant for almost two years. And they were brilliant in many aspects. Very, very smart people. Taught me a lot in terms of, what it takes globally to be successful, how incredibly talented and hungry people are and you really need to apply yourself to have any kind of chance. But ultimately I had had an aha moment. I realized at some point that there was nobody who I was reporting to who was in the organization who I wanted my life to be like in 10 years. And I looked five years and two years. And when I got to that point where I didn't have a role model who I could try and replicate, I went up to my managing director and said, I have to quit. My parents were really worried because they were like, Oscar, you can't leave a job, you have to go to a job, and this is going to look bad on your CV, and you need to have a plan, my son. And I'm like, no, Dad, Mum, I'm not happy, I need to go.
0: After his time at Boston Consulting Group, Oscar looked around for the opportunity that would give him that satisfaction that he deeply craved, and in the end decided to make a move into TV, working for a company called Zodiac Television.
1: And they made TV shows all around the world. So Go With The Dragon 2, Bear Grills, Man Vs. Wild, uh, Valander. ton of like very compelling stuff. And I met my eventually my partner in crime. His name is Zach. And he was the chief creative officer of Zodiac. He'd uh, founded the largest commercial TV broadcaster in the Nordics a couple of years before that. He's 15 years my senior. He's a punk rocker from the north of Sweden. And I was this nerdy number guy coming in with (laughs) a suit and very nervous. And I immediately wanted to impress him. I just had a very strong feeling that I want Zach to think that I'm good. And so I would apply myself like crazy in the meetings where he was present. And for some odd reason, I can't explain it till this day, he was the same. He wanted to make sure that he delivered value in our meetings and that we really, um, we clicked around that. And I immediately felt that if my life is anything like his life in 15 years, I'd be a very, very happy person. He took his job very seriously, but he didn't take himself. He has the highest IQ of anyone I knows, uh, as it, sorry, in EQ, and of IQ. He's passionate about sales and stuff. And that sort of helped me find... Sort of, that was my first role model. The second part of the story is TV production was great because one of the challenges where I came from was that everyone was exactly the same. And so in terms of trying to add value and protect my mojo... It was difficult because we'd all been to prestigious business schools. We all worked 80-hour weeks. We did the same. We had the lack of sunlight. We had lack of private lives. Everyone was a cyborg who was very much the same. <laughs> and when I came into TV production, it was totally different. I remember vividly being put in a room with um, the development team, and they were trying to hash out a new uh, idea about a TV show. And suddenly somebody cracks his great idea, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy, but OK, fine. Somebody says that this is how we're going to shoot it, this is how we're going to cast it, and this is where it's going to play out, and this is how we're going to market it. And the question gets thrown into the room, can anybody create a budget around this? And people cringe and look as though someone has died. Uh, obviously, it's difficult for people to, uh, to relate to numbers.
0: No one loves, you know, having to deal with the numbers. It takes a particular sort of person.
1: It does, and in that context, nobody did. But that was perfect for me. So I raised my hand and I go, I'm actually pretty good with numbers, so give me a while and I'll see what I can track up. And it's five o'clock. Everyone leaves. I go back to my office desk and I put on some great music and I open Excel and I crack out. I build a model and I'm done by nine. Send email it out to everyone. Come home to my wife at nine. And she's like, wow, you're home already? <laughs> because of my old work, I would work all nighters. I uh, come in to work the next day at maybe eight. Nobody's there. Nine. Nobody's there. Ten people start dropping in because different pace in that industry. And then one after one, they, they swing by my desk. And they go, so, Oscar, we had this meeting last night. I go, yeah, you mean last afternoon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we decided on all this stuff, and you were supposed to do the budget. And this morning, there was this email in my in my inbox where you'd already done everything. When did you do that? And I go, well, I did it last night. Y- you worked during the night? And I'm like, yeah, in the evening. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> and that's when it dawned on me that sort of I was the outlier. I, was sort of, I could add something different. My contribution right. in this context was valued. And the people around me were so good at what they did. So creating that context and really owning your own happiness was like a key learning for me in that process. So making sure that you're in a context where what you know is different and what people bring to the table complements you, that makes you ultimately a much happier person. And as soon as you hit that point, you become a much more successful person. So that's how I sort of dropped into the whole entrepreneurship by first not being an entrepreneur, not coming from that, Trying out the old way, realizing this is not for me, and then being put in the context where I realize that if I surround myself with people where everything is different, magical things happen.
0: For anyone that's worked in television, video, or even podcast production, you'll know that sourcing great music can be one of the most frustrating parts of the job. The traditional TV model involves film producers going to music production companies. You get access to production music, and then once you find that perfect track, you have to keep logs of exactly how much of it you use. Then you have to clear the rights of that music by paying a fee to the licensing body in whichever market you intend to distribute. It's a very complicated system that involves many, many players, and one that Oscar was growing tired with. So, along with some other producers, they decided to explore the idea of building their own company, which would fix all those issues and make the whole process simple. But before the team could really sink their teeth into fixing music, Oscar wanted to understand the entire industry better. The team had sold Zodiac Television and were in a transition period where they were dreaming up what would eventually become Epidemic Sound. And while they waited, in 2008, they decided to create a television program called Made in Sweden and placed two relatively unknown artists in a house along with three experts and then over a six-week period tried to turn them into stars. It
1: was a super cool project because the world was literally burning at the time. Lehman was crashing, everything was chaos, and we were trying to launch this completely new way of consuming music. So it was, it was quite dramatic. and uh, We were able to pull it off... But I think for us, the major learning was we understood firsthand exactly how we wanted to use the benefits and the strengths of the different value chains that we were involved in and use that in some part to help build what eventually would become Epidemic.
0: The more the team immersed themselves in the music industry, the more things started to pull together. And eventually, the five co-founders decided to pull all their learnings about making a successful piece of music and how to make money from it and turn that into a company.
1: The way it happened is we're five co-founders and two of us come from television, two of us come from music, and the fifth one is a serial entrepreneur who's more of an online-focused person. Early on, we wanted to solve for two big questions. So the macro vision was, Internet is going to be video eventually. So this is pre-YouTube being big. Remember, this is pre-Instagram, so images ha- hadn't sort of become a thing. It was still about text and slow websites and Internet, which was, uh, at best, um, so-so. But we wanted to solve for two things, right? So on the one hand, we wanted to see, how can we make sure the musicians start making tons of money off music? How can we make sure that they can make a living? Because back then, the music industry, and arguably it still is, was very much optimized around the middleman. So the number one question for us was how can we make sure the musicians get distribution and start making money? The other question we wanted to solve for was from the creator perspective. If I'm a storyteller, back then adding music to my video was the worst part of the entire creative process. And we sincerely felt it ought to be the other way around. If I have this labor of love, I'm making a documentary about yourself or about an industry or something that I'm passionate about. When I get to the point where I want to add music, that's when you should be dotting your I's and crossing your T's. That's when you should be bringing your creative process to a climax because you add emotion, you add feeling. There should be like a creative surge.
0: And it was at this point, in 2009, that Epidemic Sound was born. It was the brainchild of the five co founders, who all had their own skill set to bring to the table.
1: Uh, the names are somewhat difficult to pronounce, even for Swede. So there's this one person, his name is Jalmar Vinblad. He's the serial entrepreneur. And there's a second person called David Stenmark, who's a music producer. Number three is Per Ostrom. Number four is Jan Sackjusson, who's known as Zach. And the last one is myself.
0: And the name Epidemic came about because the team was thinking about how the music could spread globally.
1: I would say that the name is on uh, one of the co-founders called David. Names are interesting, right? Because one in the music industry, you'd be surprised about the amount of names that already are registered. So finding a a cool music name is difficult. I think one of the reasons why we really liked Epidemic and and I'm the first to acknowledge that in English speaking countries there's an association which is different from non English speaking countries because there's there's like epidemic pandemic there's a medical effect to it. Um, the way we see it is that our, our music what we do is very uh very catchy it's something that spreads um the nature of music vibes sort of one person hears something recommends it so music gets played on youtube it gets spread so it spreads very much as an epidemic around the world but it's also a case of something that sort of sticks out that's a bit punchy um that there is that dual meaning in the name is like hmm epidemic is that that's a good thing right or is it is it a bad thing and it it sticks it makes people talk about it and obviously, if you're an incumbent and we're making life difficult for you, they have a very clear opinion on what epidemic means to, to them. If you're a YouTuber or somebody who has a story to tell, or if you're a musician, ultimately you want two things as a musician. You, A, want to make sure that you can sustain your life and so you make money from your music. But arguably more important than that, if you're a creator, you have something, you have a story you want to tell be it music, be it content, be it vectors, be it graphs, whatever it is, you want to spread and as many people as possible, you want them to hear your message, what you have to say. And that's very much at the core of what we do. So we help musicians in that we're an epidemic. Our music gets played, I think, about 40 billion times every single month across YouTube and Facebook alone. We sign up customers, I mean, tens of thousands every single month. Um, we're growing at a rate now. We've never grown as fast as we're doing now. We're 10 years old and our business is growing more than 100% year over year. So we're accelerating as we grow. So we very much try and live up to our name.
0: There's quite a few people to be starting out a company with. How did you sort of like figure out things like equity splits and how did you figure out like who does what in the business?
1: Let's go equity first. Equity is very easy in the sense that let's remember that we are, for a very long time, we've been a socialist country. I think around the last 70 years, uh, 50 years have been socialist. So when we started building this company, we'd all built a couple of companies previously to that. And so we had a very fair split. Everyone uh, owns the same amount. So five people, 100 split by five, 20% each. And that was an important guiding principle. Very much, we felt secure in that because we knew that we were going to complement each other. I see myself as the mule in the sense of, imagine this mule with satchels on the sides where you put ridiculous amounts of bricks into it, arguably wearing a sombrero. I'm this machine that never takes a knee. I just get shit done. That's my special skill. That's what I add and that's what I bring to the table. Some of the people around me have had incredible um, commercial success and creative success, and they have networks, ideas, brains that work completely different to mine, and that's what they bring to the table. Some of them have experiences in scaling up companies and doing stuff that way. And again, we very much engineered how we built this company based on the different skill sets we could bring to the table. So we were very, very different, and that's worked fantastically to our favor. Arguably, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of is that within the founder group, we've never had any major issues. We keep each other very updated. We have a very open environment. I like to think that that's the way how Epidemic works as well. But over-investing in communication, in empathy, and understanding each other's point of view has very much helped us supercharge the business because... Building a business, as you know, is incredibly difficult. And the last thing you want to do is do it's internal fighting. And there's never been that case. So it was a very socialistic approach, if you will. In terms of who gets to do what, again, I'm going to give you the the honest truth. Nobody wanted to be a CEO. Uh, The luxury is to be focused. I love being the CEO now. Uh, Sometimes I joke and say I'm like a glorified janitor because I get to do everything. Um, (laughs) As soon as something goes goes south, it's always on me. I'm I'm very happy to take responsibility. As soon as something is hyper successful, I always moonwalk out of the way and make sure somebody else gets credit (laughs) for it. Um, we looked at each other in terms of who has the best skill set to be the CEO. It fell on me. It wasn't because I threw my hat into the ring. It was because I said, okay, if somebody needs to do it, I'm, I'm a numbers guy. I can probably do this. Over time, I think I've, I've grown. And I've, I think from day one, I've been very open about what I know and especially what I don't know. I'm not afraid to apologize. I'm not afraid to make decisions and then remake decisions and be quite iterative and agile, if you if you will, in that process. Ultimately, I think that helps build a lot of self, self-assurance. self People feel comfortable because they know that sort of, I'm going to be vocal if I have a strong belief. If I don't know something, I'm going to let them know, and they can inform me, and we and we create a decision around that. So that's how it honestly played out. People might engineer stories differently when they talk backward about stuff that went very well, and say, yeah, it's all on me, and I had this vision, and I had this plan. Typically, that's not how it pans out. There's a lot of luck, certain deputy involved, and quite a bit of pragmatism in terms of getting to a good place.
0: And after the break, we'll explore how all that luck has grown epidemic sound into a massive force in online music. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Before the break, we were speaking with the CEO and co-founder of Epidemic Sound, Oscar Haglund, about the early days of the Stockholm-based company. And before we go any further, it's important to talk about Sweden in the context of the music industry. It's a country with a population of less than 10 million people, but it's really become a superpower in the world of digital music, spawning several big music startups. The biggest of which is streaming music service Spotify, which was founded in 2006 and now has a market cap of more than 26 billion US dollars. There's also SoundCloud, known for allowing artists to upload their own content for the purpose of streaming, and then you have a history of great Swedish bands like ABBA. There's clearly a lot of musical talent in Sweden, so you'd think that the CEO of a music company like Epidemic might be someone who actually has some musical ability but you'd be wrong.
1: Unfortunately, I'm not a very talented guy in in any aspect, uh, in particular in music. My one skill there, I will say, uh, I play the guitar in self-defense, which sounds horrible. Nobody's ever going to hear that. Uh, as in me playing.
0: So you haven't been out composing music for Epidemic in your spare time?
1: Oh uh, God, no. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I don't do that. Um, I do love poetry and rhyming and that kind of stuff. So I'm definitely the... Um, I'm a father of three now. So come Christmas, I love the, the rhymes on presents and getting that working. I can hear a song twice and then I know the entire song by heart. So lyrics stick. I'm one of those people. I think we're like 10% of wow. population. That's um, amazing. Which is... It's a blessing and also a curse, because when you have small children, my youngest is eight, my oldest is 12, every single track that gets played on the radio, on the playlist or wherever you consume it, I hear everything that they're saying. And a lot of songs are, are, uh, let's say, ambiguous in terms of messaging. Uh, So most people just say, this is a great melody, and they bob their heads. And in some cases, I'm hearing what they're actually saying, and I'm like, yeah, we should maybe listen to something else.
0: When you were starting out, you've got this great idea that uh, you're going to make this music process just much easier and simpler and, and really change the structure of how this all works. What was the reception ha. like from the industry when, <laughs> when you, you come to them with this great idea for how you're going to make their lives easier? What, uh, what did people say?
1: Wow. Where to begin? Well, the first thing that happened when when we started telling people what we wanted to do was, yeah, well, that's impossible. One of the things we wanted to achieve was we wanted to be self-sustaining in a world where all of the music industry, to some extent, if you ask me, uh, is like a shotgun wedding. So you have record labels who have the artists, the songwriters and the actual producers uh, and the brains behind the lyrics and the songs. And then you have neighboring rights organizations who, to some extent, represent the artists, who rec- the recording artists. And then you have a number of different rights holders. There's a whole process of, of finding a r talent, producing it, distributing it, and getting it done. It's like a massive shotgun wedding where nobody calls the shots. Everyone is dependent on each other in order to get the circle to work out well. And they don't really have the same incentives, and it doesn't really work out. So initially, what we wanted to do, we said that we want to be self-sustaining. We want to build an ecosystem where we're not dependent on everyone. That's going to take a very long time. But we want to understand the end user. We want to understand the musicians. We want to be able to control A&R. We need to own the data sets. We'll put together the business plans. We'll put together the payment solutions. We'll make sure to take care of the customers and the musicians and create an ecosystem that actually works. So launching that idea initially was sort of everyone, that's a terrible idea, because it's going to take a very long time, there are no unit economics, it's not going to work out. But our bigger vision was, well, well, it's a leap of faith. It's a contrarian big bet, but we think that rather than double down in this system, which ultimately doesn't work, as we could become truly dispersed and distributed around the world, and as online video becomes a new norm, that system isn't going to scale. So the first one was disbelief. We very much had a strategy in the sense that we knew television, right? And online video wasn't a big thing back then. So we said that for the first couple of years, we should double down on television and let's soundtrack TV. And there are a number of reasons for that. One, they're very picky buyers. If you talk to production companies and you talk to the editors and the producers of the primetime TV shows in the world in general, in Sweden in particular, they're used to using whatever music they feel like. And they are very, very particular in terms of what's good and what's bad. So we felt that if we could get access to these picky buyers, they could teach us what does great music sound like. If you want to soundtrack the internet, we first have to soundtrack television. And they gave us a really hard time for a number of years, which was great. That was one part of understanding what people need Second one was about building the process around this. So, what kind of products do these people want to use? Help us understand the use case. And Coming from television, we knew one example. We have something called stems. So every single track, we've decided to record it in separate stems. And the reason behind that was that we'd made a lot of TV shows and we knew exactly what it felt like when you had the beginning of a, let's say, a Robinson episode. So panorama, this island, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum drums. And then a local national hero who's the um, host for the show is going to say, G'day, mate, in this week's episode we're going to do ba-ba-ba-ba. But his voice or her voice is the exact same pitch as the drum or the keyboard or the singing in the song. So we would spend endless hours trying to find a segment of a song which didn't include that instrument, copying it, looping it, trying to recreate a track so that the person could talk. And then we, we did it. And it was, it was a nightmare, but it was a use case problem. And nobody in the music industry wanted to address that because the impression that we had working in, in TV production was very much... Uh, music was the finer art or they felt that they were in comparison to online storytellers or television production in general and reality television in particular so the sentiment in the room would be when we met with music companies always uh, you're going to take our beautiful musical art and you're going to So make it foul by incorporating (laughs) it in this commercial television production. And in order for us to accept that sort of splite, you're going to have to pay us an arm and a leg and you can't alter anything. And so we're doing you a favor. We completely re-engineered everything behind that and said, listen, we'd be honored if you want to use our music in your storytelling and we'll take it one step further. Every track we make, we'll split it into stems so you immediately can pull them all into your timeline and you retract the drums, you retract whatever, you add the voices and you can build music in layers to accompany and highlight the story you're trying to tell might seem like a small thing, but it was a completely different way of thinking and being customer-centric and putting our users before us. Hence, getting into that whole TV business was really, really important for us, because we needed to understand the trade. We eventually got traction. Um, There was this point in time when I was looking at television in Sweden, and I flicked between every single TV channel in Sweden. We don't have that many. It's 12, I think. And they were (laughs) playing our music at the same time in every single TV channel. And so I sent an email to my co-founders and I said, hey, I think we have product-market fit. We should probably scale and move into more countries and eventually start sort of looking at our bigger vision, which is soundtracking the internet.
0: Not only did Oscar and the team have to work on getting TV production companies on board, they also had to convince musicians that this was actually going to work. So one of the strategies they took from the start was to pay musicians upfront for their music. So rather than the traditional model where musicians would create the music and wait around for years to get royalties, they'd actually have a guaranteed payment for their work, which is a much more attractive offering. I know you've got a model where you buy the tracks directly from the musicians for a particular fee. When you're starting out as a startup, like, that becomes very capital intensive to do that and you don't know what people are going to use, etc. So what was it like initially getting musicians on board with your vision?
1: I have tons to say about this. I'm very happy you asked this question. Let me bring you back to 10 years ago. We took a strategic decision in the sense that do we go public and talk about what we do, which is a very American way of doing things, sort of let the world know this is what we're doing, and then eventually do it? Or do we go more Swedish and be very secretive, don't say stuff, keep our heads down? Because strategically, there's a lot of value in building a company or so making a lot of mistakes and understandings of how stuff is actually going to work. And once you hit a certain point, when you hit a certain scale, it's going to be very difficult for somebody else to replicate or play catch up. We opted for the latter. So we didn't give interviews, we didn't talk that much, we relied completely on word of mouth, and we had a very low profile out of strategic reasons. We can get back to this later on because the jury's still out whether or not that was a good move or not because people tried to hijack our brand. There was a lot of talk about us and we didn't want to go out and comment because we wanted to keep a low profile. So initially what we did is we used word of mouth. So through our founder collective and being Swedes, there's a lot of talent in Sweden and we're very well connected as a music um, nation. And so initially we started reaching out to people. And I think in the early days that we might have had... Maximum a hundred people a month who would apply. We started out very small scale, and the pitch to musicians in in the early days was quite simple. Uh, I'm going to use a f- football comparison. We would go, Hey, so y- you're a fantastic music creator. We'd very much like to work with you. Um here's how we work. We'd like to commission music from you and pay up front. This is the exact opposite of the rest of the music industry because traditionally, as a composer or a producer, you would be asked to create music. you wouldn't get paid but there would be this vague promise that this might be a hit, there might be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it's called royalty. And if for some bizarre reason the accounting is right and the reporting is right, in two and a half years you might make some money of this. We went the exact opposite direction. We said, no, 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 we'd like to commission this track of you. I'll pay you $1,000 if you do this. This is what it should sound like. But there isn't going to be any royalty, uh, but there is a guaranteed fee. And on top of that, we'd like you to work together with us, so within our collective network of people who are the epidemic, there are 15 people who uh, have done what you've done for 10, 15 years, They're the best in the world at their game, and they can coach you, they can teach you. So arguably, it was, it was a bit like saying to uh, somebody who plays football, listen, we have this, how would you like to practice with David Beckham? And we would pay you to show up for practice. So once composers got that message out, people were really, really interested. People started to sign up and we started to screen a lot of people. I think to date, we've had tens of thousands of musicians apply. I think we work with 0.6%. So we're very selective. It's, It's difficult to work for Epidemic because we have very high standards.
0: What makes a good Epidemic musician?
1: I'd argue there's a number of things. One of the most important one is your ability to talk about the creative process be in it, but also take yourselves out of it. Because a lot of what we do is we're really good at creating music and ultimately creating emotion. So understanding what you're trying to achieve, taking feedback, working in a collaborative process is very, very important. There's set and there's experience and there's all that and that's a given. But I think being able to see your role and how you can learn and adapt and take feedback and be progressive and productive in that process that's, I think, that's a challenge for a lot of people. But ultimately, the ones who are really successful are really good at embracing that experience.
0: I mean, you talked about this point, like where you saw all of these television channels were using your music. And as you started sort of distributing your music out onto other platforms, was there a point where you realized that what you're doing is actually going to be really big and really impactful? On the
1: one hand, I've, I've always known. I've always known that Epidemic is the one. I think I've been fortunate enough to be part of building eight different companies. Uh, they've always been about storytelling from a game perspective, television, online video, uh, music, pods. I'm passionate about all that, but I've always known that Epidemic is the one. I can't really put my finger on it. It's a feeling. When you go to bed at night, it's interesting because like the last 10 seconds before you sleep... Is when you're really honest towards yourself. It's almost like an onion where all the layers of yourself and sort of my role as a father and a uh, husband and a uh, boss and a uh, son, everything just falls off and it's just you with yourself. It's the last thing that leaves my mind. It's, it gets me excited. That weird sense has always been around me. Another way of answering the question, I guess, would be that there have been tons of points in time when, when, when we've known that this is going to work out. So to take you through them chronologically one was the point when I mentioned it briefly previously sitting at home watching television at that time I, I knew every single track in our library by heart. We were up in the thousands already then and uh, I could see that on every single channel in Sweden they were playing our music and sitting down and writing that email I knew that wow this is not common this is something special fast forward I remember vividly started to fly back and forward to San Francisco sorry to California to San Bruno to the headquarters of YouTube sat down I had a couple of meetings with the CEO of the time and realizing that sort of soundtracking YouTube sort of getting to that point where we understood that okay we're doing something unique here that's going to help solve a ton of issues for music creators, for online storytellers, from the big global digital platforms. Our piece of the puzzle really fits. This is going to scale and have a big impact. That was that was another big one. A third big one was, I remember when I flew home from, um, from a summer vacation and landed in Sweden and I had 40 missed calls and it was the same day when it became public that our music was now on music streaming platforms around the world suddenly epidemic sound had gone from a well-kept secret and very much everyone in the online space knew exactly who we were but in the traditional b2c music consumption space nobody knew and i had missed calls from the bbc the new york Times, the verge the every single big publication out there wanted to know who we were because this was wow who are you guys That was like a third moment when I felt that, wow, this is okay. We're at this phase now. This is interesting. Another vivid memory I have is I I remember when I started signing checks that we would send out on a monthly basis to our musicians, where they were making hundreds of thousands. When we paid out our first million to our first creator, That was a huge moment because I really felt that we're changing people's lives. We're helping them build their livelihood. This is a big deal. This can be something. I remember when our turnover hit 100 million sec, and that's like 10 million US dollars. I cried because that took eight years to get there. We've never turned a profit. We financed this through the other companies that we've built. It's been a long-term vision. We know that over time, this is going to work. When we got to that point, I was very emotional because this is past the point of being a traditional startup that can fail. We're now in the next phase where we're scaling up. We know this is going to work, but how big is this going to be? I remember hearing certain tracks for the first time when I go, this is going to be our first hit. The 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 um the hairs on my arm just rose when I heard, wow, this is going to be the first one. So there are tons of different small micro... Instances when you feel that this is not normal. This is something spectacular. And something, I mean, I'm s- super privileged to be in that position, um, but something that not everyone gets to experience.
0: Coming up after the break, how Oscar and the Epidemic team were able to scale their music and take over the internet. Welcome back to Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. For the first several years, the five co-founders of Epidemic Sound kept fueling their dream from their own pockets, from the nest eggs they'd made in their previous business ventures. And they never took anything out.
1: So every single month, none of us would get a paycheck. We would get a bill to pay. So the company needs more money. Please please send more. Please send more. (laughs) And for almost five years, that's how it worked out. So... I had zero salary, nobody else had any salary, we lived lived off sort of what historically had um, been achieved and we would just send send more money, please send more would be the, the constant message.
0: But eventually the founders reached a point where they all couldn't afford to keep putting cash in, so they decided it was time to raise capital and start scaling.
1: We eventually got to a point where we couldn't all defend our different shares equally because um, we weren't all in the exact same position obviously. And that's when we decided to take on some external capital. And so we spoke to this um, Swedish uh, VC company called Creandum. And we told them about our vision, told them about what we wanted to do. And we were able to excite them. They were the first investors in Spotify. So they knew the industry well and they understood the macro trends. And they also had a belief that there was big change uh, about to come. And so they became a uh, shareholder in epidemic, fairly small one. We still retain the vast majority of the company. And we kept on building for a number of years. And then fast forward to about a year ago, we got to the point where we realized that, wow, we're highly professional when it comes to building our business, when it comes to scaling our operations, how we view the role of music, the role of storytelling. Um, We were happy with where we were. Where we felt we could improve was arguably in the boardroom, like from an owner perspective. We were still five individuals who helped more than 80% of the company. We weren't that well-known. We were sort of taking the next step into the global scene. We had huge ambitions. We wanted to grow fast when need be. We wanted to be swift and nimble, and we wanted to elevate our game across all levels. And so we interacted with um, a couple of investors who we uh, appreciated and, and who we felt uh, really understood not only our vision in terms of what we wanted to do, but I'd really like to highlight, we interacted with people who we enjoyed. Um, there's this test called the airplane, or the, the airport test, right? Is this a person, if I miss a flight and I have to spend two hours with this, this woman or this man in the airport, would I want to kill myself or would I really enjoy sort of having a beer or sort of talking about stuff uh, with this person? and so the personal aspect was really really important for us and we decided to um, allow this Swedish private equity firm uh, called EQT to invest and we're now split so there are three different parties so the founders uh, own some shares, EQT owns some shares and Creandum owns some shares and then on top of all of that every single person in Epidemic Sound is also a shareholder as well
0: So then they feel ownership over what they're doing and the vision that you're creating like they feel that that's part part of their mission as well
1: exactly exactly so i think we fundamentally believe that there's something that happens arguably there's something that happens around the dinner table if you will um when you go from saying that i work at this company to say that yes and and i'm an owner i'm one of the owners we like to think that people are very very proud about what we do the place where they work how what we do affects so many people it's like a very visual it's a very emotional product
0: Epidemic's focus on making sure musicians are rewarded for their music up front helped it build a large collection of digital music. And as the company had already reached a point where every TV station in Sweden was using their tracks, they started to make the content easier for other creators to access. An interesting thing occurs because we were still
1: a very small company at the time, and even though they were super excited when we met them, they were like really thrilled because they saw the value, they saw how this could supercharge the ecosystem. Something happens. If you picture an elephant trying to dance with a fly, even though they're eager to dance, every time the elephant takes a step, the fly is about to get squished and killed. (laughs) Um, And that's a pretty good sort of mental image in terms of what it's like to try as a startup to work with these really huge behemoth global companies because you would get stuff like, yes, this is fantastic. We're going to try and incorporate something with you guys in our roadmap in next quarter, which is code for this is never going to happen. And it took a while before we understood that because there are so many different priorities. There's so many people involved. There are so many layers. Large organizations can't be quick, even though they're excited because there's so much structure and politics in the way. So we tried some dancing directly with all of these platforms for a very long time and it just didn't work out. We were a fly, they were elephant, the dance was awkward and it was just off. And so we needed something which was an intermediary. And fortunately for us, there was this one point where I was at a car park in... Um, in LA, and there was this sign, and it said Disney, and it was crossed over, and it said Full Screen beneath, and I'd heard that name before. I didn't really understand what what they did, but they were a so-called multi-channel network, and they were rolling up lots of channels into a system, if, if you will, of... It's like a network, almost like a lay, like a record label, but for online YouTubers, right? So the MCNs would try and add value to all these different channels by providing them with monetization tools, advertising opportunities, tutorials, context, just sort of helping them out adding services. And then the idea dawned on us, and we were like, these are perfect intermediaries for us, because if the big platforms are too difficult to to get to... Um, these companies have some of them thousands, some of them tens of thousands, and arguably some of them hundreds of thousands of creators who are the end users that we currently want to reach and They were much smaller, much younger, much more nimble, so it would it would be a great idea to make sure that sort of these entities know about epidemic sound and so we started reaching out to them, and the biggest one at the time was Maker Studios. And I don't know how many times I flew back over to LA to meet with their CEO at the time, I think his name was Courtney. And eventually sort of I I I I broke him down and said, This is what we wanna do, this is this is why this is great and it's fantastic for all of your channels. I mean, again, the, the thing you should picture, sometimes it's to our benefit that we're a Swedish company because people go, Sweden, music, ABBA, Robin, Swedish House Mafia, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud. So what's with you guys, it makes sense. But the flip side of that is also, it's. I was this enthusiastic guy coming, Hello, my name is Oscar, we're from Sweden, we want to do music for you guys. Um, and it's it, the distance is so far, hence I had to fly over and physically corner him at a conference and tell him this is what we're doing and have him use the product and test it on a couple of channels. And once a few channels tested it, they loved it.
0: Epidemic Sound eventually moved past the multi-channel networks, offering affordable subscription plans that allowed YouTube creators to use music in their productions for a small monthly fee. And then as those creators used their music, people would comment on videos, asking them where they got the track they just heard. The Epidemic team would then reply to the comment, tag the song, and then gradually they started building their own social profile, leveraging the power of those communities.
1: And our vision and one of our strategies has been very much We want to educate the entire next generation of storytellers. This is how music ought to work for everyone. It ought to be like a super fun, inclusive process where you add stuff in your online content. And we're now seeing that we're growing with these content creators. We turned 10 on the 20th of of April this year as a company. And we're seeing that this is very much materializing. People are moving on from first being a YouTube customer of ours, then being a small production freelancer, then they now run production companies. And the whole nature of the content business works to our favor because it's a freelance business. So one person can work for five different companies. And every time they switch, first thing they do at a new job is we need to get our stuff in order. We need Epidemic because that music scales. It's great. I know exactly how that works. And they bring us along
0: on that journey. And at one point around 2016, the company decided that there was so much demand for their music on platforms like YouTube that they started distributing the tracks to streaming services like Spotify. And this proved to be incredibly successful. However, it didn't come without some controversy. Existing music labels and artists started questioning who this new music was coming from with some critics even accusing Spotify of covertly hiring Epidemic to fill their platform with so-called fake artists. Can you talk a little bit about that decision to go onto streaming platforms and how you dealt with that sort of blowback from other musicians, et cetera, who were concerned that you were stepping into into their territory, particularly on those streaming platforms?
1: So let me bring you back to what sparked that move on our part. So we were seeing that there were hundreds of thousands of online creators who on a regular basis for years had been using our music. And it was soundtracking the stories that they were sharing with their hundreds of millions of followers across the different video streaming platforms. So at that point, we were arguably very well known in the online community um, because our music was soundtracking the content creators that they followed and respected. There were more and more comments popping up around these videos saying that, I love the music you use, um, I want to listen to that when I study or when I cook or when I go out running, I just really like the music but I can't find it anywhere. But those comments, again, became so vocal, so frequent. Um, So we felt that, let's see what happens if we take our music and we upload it to a bunch of online streaming platforms so people can consume the music standalone. So again, it wasn't driven so much because we're incredible entrepreneurs and we're so super smart, more. But we really listened to our end users and to our customers. So we took a couple of thousand tracks. We uploaded them to multiple streaming platforms, where Spotify is the biggest one. We happen to be Swedish, as do they. And our tracks got traction. So step one was that they got uh, traffic from online video platforms started flowing onto the different streaming platforms. The different streaming platforms started seeing that these tracks were being listened to a lot. So they got included in all different kinds of playlists all over the place. And because for 10 years, we've been very focused on doing one thing. We create music which is perfect for capturing emotions, because that's what our storytellers want us for. Hence, when we saw the proliferation of different playlists, tens of thousands of them who had specific purposes, this is like um, chill music or peaceful or studying or running or uh, yoga or getting up in the morning, specific purposes, our music was ideal for that because we'd been doing that for 10 years time. What then happened was I think that the rest of the, the world, which wasn't online, who wasn't consuming our music, they hadn't heard to us in any kind of extent at all. And so when we suddenly started seeing all this traction online, we left the music industry baffled and bewildered in the senses of who who is this company? Who are these artists? Who is all this music? And so taking them on that educational journey was super exciting, but it was also very intense because we came, again, if you don't understand something, you fear it. So there was a lot of controversy because we don't know who these the artists are. We don't know where this music come from. There wasn't any understanding. And we were tipping the scales. We were changing something. We were adding something new. And as a change agent, you aren't typically cheered. People go, okay, is this a good change or a bad change before they understand what it was? Eventually, when they understood what we're doing is we're democratizing distribution. We're making sure that music travels flows freely from both the online video world into the music consumption world. And we're making sure that both... Uh, distribution and money can flow freely as well. We're splitting our revenues in a completely different way as opposed to everyone, and we're doing it open kimono. We're telling, this is exactly what we're doing. So what then happened was the massive question mark quickly turned into this huge influx of musicians and talents who immediately wanted to start working for us. And so that put a lot of uh, focus on us again because obviously for musicians it was great, but for the incumbents, if you're a label or if you're a publisher and you see some... A lot of my acts want to go and work for someone else. You're not going to cheer for something like that, arguably. You're going to say, wow, so we need to step our game up a little bit more. Hence, that was like the macro text of what was going on.
0: Was that sort of like stressful internally? Like when you thought you were doing this, like this really great thing for your audience and then suddenly it like, particularly around Spotify, it turned into this sort of like big thing where oh no you're you're sort of like ruining spotify and you're taking away from these other artists on the platform and and things like that like did that create a stressful situation for you
1: it was more than stressful because it, it was surreal it was surreal in the sense that we were being accused of of creating fake artists and internally what was happening was that we were saying listen we're the exact opposite of how the traditional music industry works. Historically, if you look, I'm going to use Spice Girl as an example. Take five women; they don't know each other. We orchestrate them. We sort of create different characters. We say that they know each other, but they don't. We give them, we we put them together. We create the sound. We create everything, and we put them out there. And if you ask me, that's a fake sort of a, sort of a fake story behind that. We were the opposite. We'd been working with people for ten years, saying them, "You should do exactly what you do. You're fantastic. If you want to sort of be highlighted, we can do that. If you want to work in seclusion, you can do that." Um, the the content is the important part of what you do, and you're fantastic at your trade. We're honing in on something during almost a decade, yet here we are finding ourselves in a position where people were saying, "So, no, no, no." We were apparently the fake artists, according to like the rest of the industry, and the other industry, which was like a monopoly where everything was orchestrated and where everything was like fixed that disconnect with what was actually going on and how it was portrayed was surreal because there was nothing sort of there was no merit to it so to some extent it was it was it was exciting because we got to sort of tell everyone exactly what we were doing, and you could almost see in their eyes when they realized that. We've got this all wrong. You're telling us it's the other way around? And we would go, yep. It's the other way around. So when that effect eventually came, it was hugely gratifying. But it was super painful initially, like sitting down, talking with all our musicians and composers, which is our number one priority, where they were saying, why are people saying that I or what we're doing is fake when it's everything but fake? I work with Epidemic because I get to do what I like. This is me talking as opposed to somebody telling me, write a track for her, write a track for him, do this, make it sound more like this. So that disconnect was, that was our number one concern and why we've decided to be so very vocal about this is what we're doing, this is why we're stepping up.
0: How big are you guys now? How many staff? I think at the end of 2014, we were
1: less than 30 employees. And we jumped to 2017, we were about 150. And now we're well over 300. So I think that we're arguably we're growing at a healthy pace.
0: What have you learned from trying from growing like a team that rapidly? I mean, rapid growth can be really difficult to manage. So how have you managed that rapid growth? The key
1: secret to success, if you ask me, is to really I use the term overinvest, but I don't believe you can overinvest. But overinvest in people and in relationship. If you make sure that the people around you feel secure in terms of what's the bigger vision, what are we trying to do, what's my role in this, what's expected from me, so how, what are the degrees of freedom within this organization, making sure that people feel that they understand and know that people become autonomous in a way which is fantastic if you're a fast-growing company. You have all these micro-units who, there's, there isn't this need for constant control everywhere because we have a very clear idea of, of where we're going. Um, and maintaining that sense of us community in in parallel while people feel empowered and they can do stuff, that's been like super important. So I think in in the last years alone we have multiple offices in Europe. Um, We opened our office in New York a couple of years ago. We opened our office in Los Angeles uh, a year and a half ago and come two weeks now we're opening up our first office in Australia in Sydney um, so I think that sort of making sure that sort of when we do stuff, we tend to do it properly. That's like an important part as well, I think.
0: You're 10 years into this journey now. When you look at what you've achieved, how do you feel? There's this
1: fantastic Swedish expression which goes something like, behind every successful entrepreneur, there's a very surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> uh, it's something like that. And to some extent... I guess you do feel surprised, right? Because a number of years ago, we had this vision. We wanted to soundtrack the internet. And in that process, we've been incredibly blessed by serendipity, luck, hard work, talented people, and just this process of growing, 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 so faster and faster. I feel humble. I feel excited. I feel there's a lot of responsibility from a number of different places a responsibility towards myself there's this opportunity need to make the most of it in terms of having an impact on the world there's the expectations from musicians from content creators from employees from investors uh, ultimately I think that sort of it's something that's it, it's exciting because there's this whole risk reward and either you like risk and for me risk is something that you carry with you every single day it's it's part of the whole reward and i enjoy that challenge i enjoy going to bed feeling that anything is possible i enjoy getting up in the morning and somebody presents an idea and we think it's a brilliant idea and we have the means and and the will to completely go after it so the feeling i have is one of excitement very much as of everything is possible we're still a Tiny tiny company. We've only scratched the surface of what long term we want to do. So I feel that sort of, I feel that there's so much left to do and it it, it excites me to, to, to start to sort of get that job done.
0: Thanks to Oscar and the team at Epidemic Sound for taking the time to speak with us for this episode. And in case you're wondering, we are an epidemic customer. So some of the music in this series and in this episode does come from their library. However, they've played no part in our editorial process. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingarunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research by Jasmine Mee-Lee. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan, other music in the series from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. And our artwork is by Andrew Millist. Mixing and editing by James Parkinson. If you love this episode, make sure you share it with all your friends. And while you're at it, why not leave us a five-star review? It really helps. And if you've got any guests that you'd love us to speak with in the future, or just have some feedback send us an email to unicorn at lawson.media. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.